0: Hello, this is Pastor Nathaniel, and you're listening to the Eda Talk for the Eddy Walk podcast. Here you'll find messages meant to edify and encourage God's people in the maturity, purity, and unity that comes from following Christ. From devotional thoughts to sermons from our Sunday morning services, my prayer is that the time you spend listening to this podcast will help you grow closer to our Lord and also lead you to loving others like He loves us. Let's get right to. It. Well
1: good morning, everybody. Good morning. While I'm getting my stuff set up here, um, I am back to my usual routine of sharing jokes before I preach. So if you don't mind, I've got two of them for you this morning. One relates to all the picnics that are going to be happening this weekend. The other kind of serves as a segue into the topic of my message. If you're cool, two jokes. So the first one goes like this. What did people say about Moses' wife when she hosted dinner parties? She's the hostess with the Moses. Moses. Now, the second one goes like this. What do you call a religious owl? A bird of prey. <laughs> I know, they're corny. Thanks for putting up with me. <laughs> so this morning, I want to talk to you about prayer, specifically three questions regarding prayer. What should we do when prayers aren't answered What should we do while we wait for an answer? And what do we do when they are answered? And to do that, we're going to turn to Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. Uh, If you have your Bibles, feel free to turn there. If not, there's one on the screen. And I'll let you sit down for this one. It's a little bit long. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that this was met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Festival of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, which, fun fact with that, John Mark is the man who wrote the Gospel of Mark. So they're all praying in his mom's house right now. For many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James, now this is a different James, this is Jesus' half-brother James, who was the head of the early church. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you that we have the opportunity to gather together and spend some time in your word. pray that you would give me clarity of speech and thought and that you would have a word for each and every one of us this morning. pray you'd open our ears, open our hearts to whatever that message may be. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to start with the first question I posed, which is, what do we do when prayers aren't answered? Because at the beginning of our text this morning, Luke, the author of Acts, tells us something very important, but he doesn't spend too much time on it. And he tells us that the church is going through a really rough time, that Herod has decided to get some political clout. He's going to start persecuting certain members of the church. And his first target was James. And with James, they took it all the way, and they killed him. And now Peter's been arrested. So things really aren't looking good. And if you were a member of the church, I would think you'd be very concerned. You just had one of your 12 main elders, one of the 12 witnesses to Jesus' ministry and to his life had been killed. And now they were on to the next guy, which would have been two members out of the three of Jesus' inner circle. So that was about as intense as you could get. And there's a lot to unpack here. Because I want you to imagine for a moment that you're a member of that early church. You're on your way to Mary's house to start praying for Peter. And you go there with this sort of background in your mind. What are some of your questions? What would some of your concerns be? What are some of the bullet points that you've written down on the back of a napkin to take to pray with you? What sort of questions would you ask? And I'll tell you, there was one that I asked pretty early into my sermon writing process. And that question was, why did God rescue Peter and not James? And I'm sure the church prayed fervently for him, too. We already mentioned James was one of the 12. He was a member of Jesus' inner circle, just like Peter was. Didn't God care about James as much as he did about Peter? Peter? Weren't they equally loved? Weren't they equally important? What was the reason for one being rescued and not the other? Better yet, let's make that question even more general. Why is it that sometimes miracles happen and sometimes they don't? And this isn't an easy question to wrestle with. And Luke doesn't address it or even attempt to. He just moves on with the narrative. So we have to wonder a little bit. What do we do when we pray and rescue doesn't come? How do we respond when God doesn't answer the way we want him to, when our stories mirror James more than Peter's? You know, we talk about unanswered prayers, and that's really a misnomer because God hears and he answers all of our prayers, The reality of it is we've never had a prayer that's gone unanswered. We've had prayers answered differently than we wanted them to, but they weren't unanswered. And for some reason, we prefer to imagine that God forgot to check his inbox or plugged his ears instead of had a different opinion about it. I don't know, maybe we tend to think an oblivious deity is easier to handle than a refusing one. But when we think of martyrdom and suffering and prayers not being answered the way that we want, what happens? Most of us tend to bristle at that, don't we? We, we get that knot in the pit of our stomachs. Our hair stands on end. It, it, it's uncomfortable. We ask God where he was, as if he'd broken his promise that he'd be with us always. We act like we have the authority to determine what God can and can't do. Sometimes we might even be tempted to imagine him as a sadistic being who, before the world was even created, he sat down and said, you know what? People got to have some rough stuff in their life. I'm going to put a little bit of this for this person, a little bit of this for that person. Don't believe me? Well, I'll use James' martyrdom and kind of pretend for a moment that I'm a member of that early church and give you some examples. Imagine you're talking about what happened. And you said, where was God when James was being killed? God, don't you dare let Herod touch him. God took James from them. God decided he should be martyred and that he'd be the first disciple to do so. What if we, the church, had only prayed a few more times? Would God have answered then? What if we had a little bit more faith? Because if we don't go after God's character, we tend to go after our performance. And we berate ourselves imagining God to be so picky to the point that it's trivial, that we have to hit a certain prayer count for him to answer us or do what we want. Like, there's some sort of code, and that is just as wrong. And don't we ask or say these same kind of questions regarding struggles that we face or that we see other people face? And frankly, it's enough to want to grab Luke by the shoulders and demand an explanation, isn't it? Or you say, Luke, why did James suffer? Why do we suffer? But Luke doesn't even try to handle it. And it's not because he never asked it himself. I'm sure that he did. And in fact, given his background, I bet he asked why a lot more than a lot of members of the early church. Because Luke was a physician. He was from Antioch. And eventually he gave up his practice in medicine, and he became a missionary with Paul. And as part of his ministry, he wrote these letters to someone named Theophilus, Both Luke and Acts detailing an account for them about eyewitness records of Jesus' life and ministry, the gospel story, what the church has been up to. He's an incredible guy. Another interesting thing that I learned in college is that Luke's handle of Greek is absolutely phenomenal. I don't know Greek myself, but every professor and every scholar I've ever heard, they say Luke was one incredibly smart guy. And he knew what he was talking about when it came to medicine, too. Because if you ever want to have the most detailed information about what sort of things Jesus healed, look in the Gospel of Luke because Luke will detail what the ailment was. Sometimes he'll even say, here's a track record this person had. Nobody could heal him. Here's what Jesus did. All that to say, Luke knew his stuff. And anyone in the medical field, for any amount of time, has to face the grim reality that sometimes people suffer. You don't know why. And there seems to be no rhyme or reason. I'm sure there were nights Luke came back from his practice and said, God, why did that wicked merchant respond to treatment and that little child didn't? Why is such a holy young man going blind? Why couldn't I save that patient? bet it's something that Luke wrestled with a lot. You see, St. Luke was human just like us. Sometimes I think we like to whitewash the people of the Bible and imagine that they, they never experienced what we had to feel, but they did. But what's interesting is Luke doesn't address the whys here because he's far more interested in a different question. He's more concerned with commitment than he is about answers. And this is an emphasis that was shared by the early church. Because if we were to ask them our question about James and Peter, I think Luke would have used a quote preserved by James' brother, John. Because at one point in the gospel, the disciples and Jesus are walking along, and they find this blind man begging on the side of the road. And the disciples gathered their courage and said, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? What's the reason? And Jesus answers by saying, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Now, why do I think this would be the answer that Luke and the early church would give us regarding James? Because the early church realized that God is just as active in the martyrdom stories as he is in the jailbreak stories. They knew that their lives were meant to bring glory to God, no matter what happened, whether that was because they had to stand on trial for their faith or because God miraculously preserved them from those trials at all. Peter's escape from prison testified to God's power and love, but so did James' resolve. It's not either or, it's both and. And So the question Luke wants us to ask isn't, Why are some people martyred and some people are rescued? He wants us to consider instead if we're committed to God enough that we're willing to experience either outcome. Are we willing to expect God to do great things on our behalf? And are we willing to go through anything on his behalf? And this is something really profound that Luke does here because a lot of the times we tend to agonize over the why's a lot more than we think about the no matter what. Because prayer isn't ultimately about positive outcomes, emotional release, or intellectual growth. It's about relationship. It's about love that refuses to walk away, love that's honest, love that won't give up. We have to pray with dauntless commitment, deciding to serve God no matter what does or doesn't happen knowing that he loves us, that he is good no matter what, and whether it costs us monetarily, socially, or life itself, we're going to be committed to him because he was first committed to us. And that's why the grieving church showed up to pray again. And in that, they set an example for us to follow, that when our prayers aren't answered the way we hoped, we have to keep praying and pressing on. And that said, it's not always easy. And while the early church was an amazing example of what to do after prayers go unanswered in the way we hoped, they also gave us an example of what not to do when it comes to the second question. And the second question is, what should we do while we wait for God to answer our prayers? Because if I were to grade the church's behavior that night, they'd get an A-plus for commitment. Right? They gathered after grief. They're staying up all hours of the night and day to pray. Good job, guys. A++ even. However, when it came to hope, they got a D-. And that's being nice because I could give them an F. But I'll be a nice professor. Because think about it, when Rhoda hears a knock at the door and goes to answer it, she knows it's Peter, she's excited, she runs back and tells everybody, hey, guess what, Peter's at the door. And I don't know about you, but the typical reaction that I've seen in the church when God answers prayer is celebration, right? We tell each other about how God answered prayer, we thank each other for praying, it's a wonderful time. But that's not what happens here. They look Rhoda dead in the eyes and say, you're crazy. And the Greek word for out of your mind here is minami. And it means the same thing it does in English. Crazy, out of your mind, beside yourself, insane. But what's interesting is the root word it comes from is "maio." And mayo means to have a really intense craving that's not grounded in any semblance of reason or reality. So, in other words, they're telling Rhoda, look, you've been praying for Peter so much that you're literally going insane. You are hallucinating. Your faith has reached the point of stupidity. You've got to calm down, you're way too desperate. And to Rhoda's credit, she didn't accept their analysis. She kept insisting that she was not mine and was telling them the truth. Now, here's what I find really hilarious. And well, it's equally hilarious and sad, but it's pretty funny. Because the members of the church decide, okay, Rhoda, maybe you're not hallucinating. Maybe Peter has a guardian angel that happens to have his exact same voice and isn't ministering to him in the prison right now and instead has shown up at Mark's mother's house for who knows what reason. And that was logical to them. And it's like, yeah, because that's not harder to believe than Peter's at the door. And meanwhile, Peter, he's out there knocking on the door, wondering where on earth Rhoda went if she passed out and why no one seems to want to let him in the house. He also probably doesn't want to wake up the neighbors because he's technically a a prisoner on the run. And whether the group finally realized that Peter was at the door, whether they thought they better let the angel in, were on to the next theory, or just wanted some quiet to think, they opened the door and were genuinely astonished to find Peter there. Why? If they have been praying for him all night, why would they be so stunned? And I think it's because they prayed too small. I can't help but wonder if they primarily or even exclusively prayed that God would strengthen Peter and protect him from denying Christ on trial. And to give him comfort somehow. And not to harp on Peter, but given his track record of folding under pressure, they probably thought that that was a logical one. And maybe when, they, when Rhoda said Peter was at the door, maybe they worried that he stumbled again. And that he denied his faith in order to escape. I don't know. But I can't help but wonder if they didn't have the courage to imagine God would help Peter escape. Because maybe they kept thinking about James. James. I don't know. But I do know that praying boldly, especially after we receive a no, is hard. But Jesus made it clear that he does not want us to hold back when it comes to prayer. At the Last Supper, he said, I'll do whatever you ask. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And one thing I notice about this verse is that it's not a suggestion not a promise and he won't strike us dead if we dare try it. It's an invitation. It's a statement. And we respond to it with objections so quickly. So I know sometimes even when I read this verse, the immediate thing that comes into mind is, well, yeah, but that's not a license to think a Maserati is going to pull in my driveway or I'm going to get a winning lotto ticket tomorrow. Right, And we jump to those objections, and we draw these caricatures of crazy Christians who want to get rich quick. And I think we do that because we're uncomfortable. Because if Jesus really wants us to pray about anything, that's what he means. You may ask for anything in my name. And I'm not saying it's a get-rich-quick scheme. Please don't misunderstand me and think that. I'm not telling you, go ask God for a million bucks, let's all get rich and build a couple mansions here in Springwater. No, what I'm saying is, if there is something that is on your heart and on your mind, don't be afraid to ask God for big things. If your Peter, whatever that is, is in prison right now, don't just pray for strength to endure. Pray he'll get out of prison. Pray for that escape. Pray for the miracle. Pray for the above. Pray for the beyond. Because that's what Jesus is asking us to do right here. And there's usually two reasons that we don't. The first is out of fear. Because we're terrified that God's going to tell us no. Or that it's not going to work out. And part of that fear comes from the imagination that God is a cruel God, that he takes a lot of convincing that he's hard, that he doesn't want to help. And that's wrong. But what's equally wrong is to say, asking for big things, that's for those crazy Christians over there. And that boils down to, I'm too holy to do that. I'm so holy that I'll go ahead and I'll face martyrdom. I don't, I don't want to escape. Aren't I holy? All those crazy Christians over there, They're not smart enough to see the truth of what's going on. But I am. So I'm not going to ask God for that because I know what's theologically correct about this. It's like we look down our noses at the rotas of the world sometimes, don't we? And we say, yeah, Peter's not at the door. You're hallucinating. Your faith is at the level of stupid. And that is equally wrong. We ask little... And expect little. And all the while, sometimes we look foolish because we underestimate God's capabilities and character. Sometimes we do so at the expense of harping on our brothers and sisters. Emily Dickinson wrote that hope is a thing with wings. And I want to play with that stanza just a little bit. And in playing with it, I want to say this. Hope is an eagle, not a chicken. Eagles soar, right? And they do it for the glory of God. They're up high, they keep going, they endure, they're sturdy. And chickens often have their wings clipped and run in circles in small cages. I'm not saying you have to be a peacock, don't be a peacock. But be the eagle that God made you to be. And if someone tries to rain on your parade, it doesn't matter. Because eagles don't care about storms. They fly above the storm clouds, and they keep minding their own business. And that is the same thing that we have to do. While we wait for God to answer our prayers, we should wait with expectant hope. Now, what do we do when our prayers are answered? For this answer, we have to take a lesson from Peter and Rhoda. Because when Peter wakes up in the prison, he's quite groggy, which I think is awesome because I am very slow when it comes to waking up. So knowing that there is a biblical saint that I'm emulating, is uh, that's quite the comfort. <laughs> um, but I find it incredible that Peter was able to sleep at all, let alone so deeply, when he is about to be martyred. And it's even more amazing because it tells us how much his life has been transformed by Christ. Because in previous times of crisis, the one thing that Peter has not done is sleep. When he's really stressed out, he cannot sleep. There are times he wasn't stressed out when he should have been, a.k.a. Garden of Gethsemane. But there were other times, like when he and the other disciples were out in a boat and a storm came up, that he knew it was a good time to be stressed. And he was not sleeping. In fact, he and the disciples got after Jesus for sleeping in the boat in the middle of chaos. And now here's Peter sleeping in the middle of chaos, acting more like his Savior. He knows what it is to have the peace of Christ because he has that commitment we talked about earlier. He's committed to the Lord, and he knows that the Lord is committed to him, and that's what allows him to sleep in the midst of trouble. Now Luke tells us that when Peter wakes up, he's very confused. And we tend to imagine that that confusion is because of a lot more than grogginess, right? After all, Peter, God love him, has a little bit of a reputation for being a little bit thick. Sometimes it takes him a while to understand what's actually going on. He's prone to making assumptions and looking a little silly in the process. But I absolutely love those sections of Scripture because if you look closely, you can see where his heart's at and usually his heart is in a really fantastic place when these moments happen. Just the way that he expresses it, there's a little bit of communication problems between his heart and his mouth. And I think that's what happens here, because Peter assumes that God's giving him a vision, and that was a really common way that God talked to the early church. It's also worth noting that visions are incredibly popular among the martyrs. In Acts, you'll read about how people got a vision before they went on trial or a vision as they were dying. And in church records, there are diaries of the martyrs and historical accounts of other martyrs that experienced very similar things. So if you were going to be a martyr, one of your hopes was that God would give you a vision and give you the comfort and strength you needed to move forward. And that's what Peter thinks is happening. So he's not thinking... Finally, get out of jail free card. Let's go. No, he was thinking, wow, God is so good. He's taking care of me. He's, he's comforting me. He's, he's giving me a message. He's, he's giving me strength. What a good God I have that he's showing up to take care of me. And I think that is absolutely beautiful. Beautiful. So even if it didn't register right away that he was really being rescued, the reason he's not understanding is because he's so caught up in how good God is and how loving God is. And Rhoda does the exact same thing because when Peter comes to the door, my reaction would have been, Peter, fling the door open hug him, ask him how he was, make sure he's okay, tell him to come on in, I'd get get him something to drink, and oh boy, aren't the others going to be happy to see you. Rhoda doesn't do that. She doesn't even turn the doorknob. She just turns around and tells the others, guess what? God answered our prayers. God is so good. Peter is at the door. And let me tell you what, I am so excited. I just got to testify that God is good. Come on, guys, let's go get Peter. Right, So both of them loved the answerer more than his answer. So that when that time came, that when their prayer was answered, their number one mindset was, God is good. Of course, his answer was good. It was very good. But even greater than that, God was good. And they wanted to testify about that. And so when our prayers are answered, we have to follow Peter and Rhoda's example, delighting in God even more than the answer that God provides. Natalie Grant has a song called More Than Anything, and one of the lines in it is, Help me want the Savior more than the saving. Help me want the healer more than the healing. Help me want you, Jesus, more than anything. And may that be the prayer of all of our hearts. Now, today is the fifth Sunday of the month, which means we get to talk about a hymn. And the hymn for this morning is, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus. And it was written by a woman named Louisa Stead. And my title of the sermon comes from this song, Oh, for Grace to Trust Him More. Because that's what we need, don't we? With unanswered prayer, we need grace to trust him more. When we wait for the answers to prayer, we need grace to trust him more. When our prayers are answered, we need grace to trust him more. We need grace to pray bigger. We need grace to endure. Oh, for grace to trust him more. And Louisa, this was the cry of her heart. She lived in the mid-1800s into the early 1900s. She was born in England, moved to Ohio when she was a young woman. And she went to a church meeting there. And at that church meeting, she dedicated her life to be a missionary. Which I have to say, in that time period, being a single woman, accepting a call to ministry, especially missions, was an incredible, very difficult thing to do. But that's exactly what she did. However, her health was a little poor, so she was prevented from going into the mission field right away. And in the meantime, she got married and had a daughter they named Lily. And one weekend they had a a day off or something, they decided that they were gonna go to Long Island and they were going to enjoy a day at the beach. So they're there, they're having their picnic, everything is great. And all of a sudden they hear a boy screaming in the water, and they realize that he is drowning. And her husband goes out to rescue the boy, but the boy inadvertently pulls him under, and both of them drown. So Louisa and her daughter Lily, they wound up leaving for missionary work soon after that, and they went to South Africa, and they went with heavy hearts. They they just experienced grief. But they pour their hearts into missions, and they do all that they can over there to share the good news of the gospel. Both ladies eventually found husbands where they ministered, and Louisa's health took another turn for the worse, so she went to the U.S. to recover for a while. And then when she was ready to go back into the field, she went to what is now Zimbabwe. And at some point in all of this, she writes down the hymn, "'Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus." And there was one hymnologist that I wrote, or that I read, and he wrote this, this little note saying, this song is kind of strange because it doesn't follow the pattern of any other hymns. It, it's not as complex as you would expect it to be. What seems to hold it all together is the name Jesus, because you sing it over and over and over. And the, the thing that stands out that really gets driven home Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him over and over. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. And that's where she took her confidence, that through every struggle, through every challenge of her life, from immigrating to the U.S., from losing her husband, to going into ministry, to having the courage to marry again, to being a single mom, the one thing that she testified to, was that Jesus proved himself faithful time and time again, that she was committed to him, that she loved him, and that what she desired above all else was to have even more faith, to trust him even more, so that as she continued to live, she would see his goodness. Her hymn was published in the 1880s, And it was a hit among her fellow believers in Zimbabwe. And that's where the song really first took off. And it was written that after her death, that song was continuing to be sung in Zimbabwe in the local language. So as I close this morning, I pray that the words Louisa wrote would sum up well not only the attitude of the church, but the attitude of the present church. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him. How we've proved him over and over. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. Oh, for grace to trust him more. to the doxology for us as we head out. Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. Thank you for the opportunity to come together, to worship together, to spend time in your word together. Lord, thank you for the ways that you've proved yourself over and over to us. Thank you for the ultimate way you showed your love on the cross. Thank you for all of the answered prayers in our lives. And thank you for the prayers that weren't answered the way that we wanted them to be. Thank you for showing up and proving yourself to us in a different way then. Thank you that your love never lets go. Thank you for your commitment to us. And I pray that you would help each and every one of us to reflect that love back to you and to be committed to you, and that as we go through life, that our faith would continue to grow, and our trust in you would continue to increase, so that by the time we see your face, we have more faith and more trust in you than we ever dreamed possible. Mm -hmm. Lord, this is one of the bold prayers that we're asking this morning. Teach us how to pray, as the disciples asked. Teach us how to live. Teach us how to love you. Teach us how... To either have to face trials or face rescue. Thank you, Lord, for the wonderful example that you are for us. Lord, I pray that you would bless each and every one of us as we leave today, that you would bless and keep us, make your face to shine upon us and give us peace, and may you use us for your kingdom in our own corners of the world, however you would please to use us. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus.
0: Thank you for taking the time to listen. If this podcast is helpful to you, please rate us on iTunes or like our page, Springwater Church of the Nazarene, on Facebook. Have a great day and Lord bless.